Well, good morning once again, Red Tree. Uh, turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 through 7. That's where we're going to be today. Uh, we're going to continue on in our series in prayer this morning. If you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, we've been using the Lord's Prayer, some of you may know it as the Our Father, as a template from which to preach this series. You just heard Stephanie recite the Lord's Prayer. Thank you, Stephanie, for, for doing that for us. Um, part one of this series was centered around the first part of the Lord's Prayer, uh, Our Father in Heaven. And, and Sam preached uh, from Luke 18. It was the parable of the persistent widow. And I'm just going to sum that up really quickly this way. And that's that we have a Holy Father in Heaven who knows what we need before we even ask Him. And so we can pray to Him with passion, with persistence, with trust, because, and this is the key point, he is a good father who hears us. That is not only important for this prayer, it is critical to our theology of who our God is. That is critical to who we believe our God is. When we think of God, we should think of him as a good, good father. And that was part one. That was our father in heaven, our good father in heaven. Part two last week um, was your will be done. And I loved it. It was from John chapter 15, where, where we talk about Jesus um, being the vine, and we are to abide in the vine. And, and Jesus, what, what Sam said was, in this passage, we see Jesus insert himself into our understanding of what our relationship with God should look like. It's a, it's a great example. It's one of those things where you know, you know that's what he's doing. But when Sam said that, it was like, oh. That was so good for me to hear. It speaks of the utter dependence we are to have on God. And Jesus models that for us. And that is no better model than we have and that we need than Jesus. It's the truth that the Father loves the Son. And the Son loves and abides in the Father's love. And this is the love from which Jesus loves us, you and me. And we together are to abide in that love. It's beautiful. What is it then to abide in Christ? And what does abiding have to do with our prayer life and the will of God? Well, if you take verse 7 of John 15 and verse 10, and you kind of combine them and think and process through those things, you get this statement that Sam said. We are to ask God for whatever we want. But he went on, right? We are to ask God for whatever we want while in context where he is molding us to be more and more like him. Because our hearts, when our hearts are aligned with God's heart, we will pray for what he desires. And that is a prayer that God will answer every single time. This idea of us aligning our hearts with God is what Romans 8.29 and 2 Corinthians 3.18 
talk about. You, you can look those up later. But, but it's what it means to follow Jesus. It's what it means to submit to being conformed and transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what those verses talk about, connecting with the will of the Father, connecting with the heart of our Savior, God. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, where we are about what he is about, where we love what Jesus loves. We pursue what Jesus pursues. We desire what Jesus desires. And we do this in increasing measure in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's what we talked about when we talk about the Jesus part of Jesus' family mission. We are about what Jesus is about and desire what Jesus desires. That's the first thing that needs to happen in our hearts. So the question is, what does, de what does Jesus desire? Well, if, if you heard last week's message, you already know this, uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to this in a little bit because I want to tie the answer to that question, what does Jesus desire, uh, with today's message. So let's put that on pause for just, just a second. Today's sermon is centered around part three of the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, when you think about that, it's pretty amazing that we could go from praying and understanding that, that we are to see God as our Father, our good Father in heaven, uh, from there and that we should pray in lockstep with his will to be done. It's pretty amazing that we can go from those two things to praying for our daily food when you think about it. That's quite a leap. It's quite a leap. And so, and, but that's what, that's what we're called to do. And we learn a lot about God in those seven words. Give us this day our daily bread. We, we learn that our daily food is a gift from God. That's the first thing. The second thing is we learn or, or that we are to live in daily dependence on our God. Now, we miss this in our, in our modern day, don't we? Because we don't want for anything. We don't want for anything. Even when we're short of cash, we can pull out plastic, which we usually do anyway, and we can buy anything we want. We, we, we can go to our pantry right now, and we can pull out anything we want, pretty much. Or we can order it online or on the phone. Now, truth is, because of this stay-at-home order and this pandemic, um, we're a little more aware of the fact um, that like our supply chain has been cut off and diminished a little bit. So there, some of you have probably gone to the store, to the grocery store, and you've literally seen a bread aisle that is empty. So we kind of get to resonate with this a little bit in our time, um, but not totally, uh, not like in the first century where they would have to pray for, for their daily sustenance. And we can all think of particularly uh, missionaries, George Mueller, who would pray daily for God to bring, literally bring sustaining food to the orphanage where, where he worked and what he started. Uh, we hear stories about this, but, but we're a little bit detached from that. And yet we need to remember that our daily bread that we are, are blessed with, God provides. Now, God is, in fact, number three, our good father because he is concerned about our daily sustenance. He's worried about, not worried, but he is there to provide our daily needs, and, and he's concerned for us in that way. And when we put those three truths together, I ask myself the question, why? Why is God good 
this way? What is his purpose in providing for us this way, for our daily bread, for our daily needs? Is it, is it simply to show us his character and his nature of being good? I mean, we even see this truth, the truth that God is good in the nature of food itself, don't we? He could have provided a colorless, tasteless, odorless paste to give us nutrition. He could have done that, but he didn't. He provided a vast array of colors and smells and textures and tastes for our benefit. That is a testimony of his goodness. Why would we not want to pray before every meal? Now, I don't want to over-spiritualize the truth of daily bread. Jesus was really talking about food when he said to pray, um, give us this day our daily bread, our, our daily sustaining grace in that way. But, but I think that we can understand the principle of seeing God's goodness and tender loving care in providing daily for us in our lives by connecting that truth to the question that I left us with a minute ago. What does Jesus desire? Right? We, learn in, we learn the heart of Jesus in Matthew 9. Do you guys remember this from, from last week? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask questions as if you're here. Um, I just, it's a habit. But, but when, we, when, when he saw the crowds in Matthew 9, when he, saw, when he saw the crowds, the text said he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he told the disciples that the harvest is plentiful. It's the laborers that are few. And he tells them, pray. Don't just pray. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send more laborers into the field so more and more people would come to know him. This is the heart of our Savior. This is the very heart of God. Now, I want to connect this truth about the heart of Jesus with part three of the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Then I want to discuss the implications that this has on our prayer lives as disciples of Jesus. And I want to do this today by looking at our text in 1 Timothy chapter 2, because I think this text gives us an even fuller and richer picture of the heart of Jesus and it provides a launching point for not just how we pray, but how we are to live our lives as disciples of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to pray for our time, and then we're going to read the text from 1 Timothy chapter 2. So pray with me. God, we are so grateful for this morning, a new morning where we experience new mercies and, and where we through technology, get to be together as a church family with, with other folks who are logging on and watching this. And we're grateful for each and every person that is listening to this and watching this right now. Father, we pray for your anointing of this time. We pray for your anointing of your word and that your spirit would inhabit our hearts to teach us your word. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So turn with me, guys, to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to read the first seven verses, and this is what the text says. First of all, then, 
I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And this is the word of the Lord. Now, let me, let me put this briefly into some context for us. Uh, this letter was written by Paul to Timothy. Now, Timothy was Paul's spiritual son in the faith. He was a disciple of Paul, and he was a pastor at the church in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a large, flourishing, religiously complex and diverse place, kind of like our modern American cities. Uh, the temple of the Greek goddess Artemis was located in the town of Ephesus. And that cult had a particularly influential uh, or was particularly influential on this city. So Timothy was not ministering in a culture that was founded on Judeo-Christian values. In fact, it was far from it. And, and these external influences, just, just like in our day, these external influences um, have a tendency to shape the hearts of the church. So that's a brief, brief cultural snapshot. A few years ago, we preached here at Red Tree through these pastoral epistles. We, we preached through First and Second Timothy and Titus. And, and the sermon series title of First Timothy was The God Alive Church. You guys probably remember this. They're still online from a few years ago. You can check those out on our website. But I love that title, The God Alive Church, taken from First Timothy chapter 3, where Paul says, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, that phrase, church of the living God, can literally be trans translated God alive church. I love that. But this letter wasn't only for Timothy as a pastor. We, we call these the pastoral epistles because they're written to these pastors and they're kind of a manual for church leaders on, on how the church should run. This is where we, we read of the qualifications for elders and deacons and other things like that. But it's not just how you should pastor the church, but it's how every believer should behave in the household of God, in the church, this living, breathing, beautiful bride of Christ that is a pillar and a buttress of truth, the church. This is how, what we read of, is how the people in the church should relate to one another, thereby displaying the goodness of, of our good God to the world around them. Now, I wish 
that I had time to camp out on this idea as the church being the bride of Christ, because I think it's really, really important to how we live as Christians because of how God sees us as his bride. So, so let me just put it this way really briefly. When, think about this. When was the last time or whenever the last time was that you attended a wedding? What happened? Well, as time draws closer to the time the wedding is to begin, the groomsmen come out from front, from the front, and they line up, and the groom comes out with usually the, the pastor, whoever's going to marry the bride and the groom. The, the parents and the grandparents are seated. By now, music has begun to play, and, and everyone is settled in, and they've kind of quieted themselves and then there's the procession of the bridesmaids. These, these people, the women, they come in with their flowers and, and they take their place opposite the, uh, the groomsmen. And then what happens? Well, all eyes are turned back in, into the back of the church where the doors by now have been closed. The doors of the church, if this is in, indoors, the doors have been closed and everybody stands up in anticipation of the bride and they turn to look. And the doors are opened and this beautiful, breathtaking, radiant bride enters the room. And as she passes by each row, what happens? The posture of everyone changes as she goes by, eyes fixed on her. And she goes up and she takes her place in the front of the church next to her groom. Now, the best part of all of this is what most people don't see. The best part is watching the groom. Right? If you want to see an ugly crier, watch a groom at a wedding. Right? That'll tell you how much he loves his bride, how much he cries. They're ugly criers for the most part. But pay attention to the, to the groom when the bride enters the room. The first thing you will see weeping because of, he's beholding the beauty of his bride, his much-anticipated bride with whom he is about to be united Here's the point of all this. This is how God sees you. This is how God sees his church. This is how he sees you. This is how he sees me. This is how he sees Red Tree Church. Beautiful, spotless, breathtakingly radiant. And why is that? It's because of who we're married to. It's because of the Lord Jesus who died to redeem us, to redeem the bride of Christ, of, of Christ, the church. Now, the reason that I say all of this and the reason I begin this way is to help shape our hearts and our minds to how God sees us. When was the last time you thought of your church this way? I got to be honest with you. I have my moments where I don't think that way where I, I let all these petty things get in the way and get into my heart and cause division in my heart. I trust you're the same. And the reason, usually, why it's been a while, why, why, why we don't see the, the bride of Christ this way, why we don't see ourselves through the eyes of God is because we haven't been abiding in Christ very much. We're not understanding and connecting with the one with whom we are hidden in God. The good father, we sung this earlier, Colossians 3, 3, where our life is now hidden with Christ in God the Father. You see, here's the, here's the important thing. It's not, not only do we need to see 
God accurately. As, as a good father, it's critical for us to understand how he sees us. If we don't understand how God sees us, then everything I'm about to say will only be frustrating and guilt-producing. And that is not my intent, and that is certainly not the heart of our God. We love because he first loved us. Paul sums it up in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And that's where I want to come from this morning. And that's where we all need to come from as disciples of Christ. Again, we wrap our lives around Jesus. We engage the bride, the family of God. And together, we go out and we fight the battles We make disciples. We pray hard and we expect big things of our big God. So with this in mind, let's go back to our passage this morning. And remember, our template is the Lord's Prayer. Specifically today, give us this day our daily bread. We experience God's goodness and tender loving care in providing daily for us in our lives, right? We just do. And this impacts and this shapes, or it should impact and shape our prayer life as well as our actions. Now let's, let's look at the text again. Let's move through here and let's say a few things. In 1 Timothy, in, in chapter 2, the first two verses, Paul says, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for all those who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Paul is urging us here to pray in many different ways for all kinds of people and not just the ones that we know and not just the ones that we like and not just the ones that we approve of. Specifically, he says we are to pray for kings and those who are in high positions. Now again, cultural context of the day in the first century, the emperor of Rome was Nero. He was a bad, bad guy. He would persecute Christians. He would feed them to lions. He would crucify them. He was known to to light them on fire and use them to light the streets of Rome and to light his garden parties. He was a horrible, horrible person. This is the context of the day that Paul says, these are the leaders you're supposed to be praying for. But why pray for them? Is it because that's what we do? Is it just what Christians do? No. It's for the purpose of what? Leading peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified lives. Why? Why should we lead peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified lives? Or why should we pray that God would give us our daily bread? Well, is it because that's our reward for being a Christian? Is that that how we should be treated because we follow Christ? Our reward, believer, as a Christian, is being united to our good Father through the sacrifice of Jesus and being sustained by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our reward is God's very presence in our lives, regardless of circumstance. So the the answer is clearly no. 
right? It's, it's not because it's a reward for us. In fact, it's, it's the opposite. Paul tells Timothy in his second letter in chapter 3, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So then why pray for those in high positions that we would have peace? Paul says, pray for Nero. Pray for his salvation. Pray that he would have peace, the peace of Christ. Pray that independently of whether or not he is continuing to persecute you and light you on fire. Now, imagine, if, imagine the hostility that might grow in your heart towards a leader like that and the difficulty in praying. Imagine the hostility towards those leaders who were persecuting. Or perhaps you have hostility in your heart today, right? Towards those who you perceive are persecuting you. Now, there's a provocative statement, right? Those who you perceive are persecuting you. Conspiracy theories abound right now. And the motives of certain factions of kings and people in high positions, leaders in our country are being questioned. Are they true? Are these conspiracy theories true? Are they false? Well, what Paul is saying here is twofold. He's saying, yes, pray for the leaders in a way that promotes peace, but, but pray in a way that enables the church to flourish. This is very important. Do, do we pray? Do, do we want things to get back to normal? And, and maybe if we're not aligned with what some of the leaders are telling us or if we're, we're being persecuted for our faith, um, we should pray not for our selfish, not, not for selfishness that feeds a defiant heart. We should be praying that the church of the living God, the bride of Christ, would flourish in a world that needs to see the church. Now, at the same time, Paul seems to also say that we should pray for our leaders that even if they do persecute us, that we would still live peaceful, quiet, godly, and dignified lives under their rule. It's through this praying that the church, the distinct, set-apart people of God, the bride of Christ, will be prepared and equipped to live lives of godliness and dignity, listen, amid any kind of adversity and flourish. Jesus says he came to give us abundant life. And we can do this. And it's because of the peace that we have within that surpasses all understanding, not because of the peace our flesh desires externally. This this. Is, this is, is what 1 Timothy 2.3 says is good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. You see, response is everything to a believer. We can't, we can't change the behavior of the world, but we can respond correctly as a believer. Right? It's, it's all about how we respond, whether it's vocally by our language, by our words, or our actions, or whether it's internally, right? the condition of our heart. God cares about our heart and how you are responding to adversity, even this adversity. Because listen, adversity, persecution, in all of its form, is going to happen. 
we treat adversity these days and, and what we like to call persecution in this country that's really not persecution, we treat it, and I'm going to use a worn-out phrase, we treat it like it's breaking news. We treat it like it's breaking news. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is First Peter chapter 4. Pray that leaders, yes, pray that leaders let us live in peace so the church can flourish. Pray that, that the stay-at-home order stops. Pray that churches can get back to being the church. Yes, pray for those. Pray, pray for that peace. But don't be surprised when the world acts like the world. Let's make sure that the world sees Christians acting like Christians. Like, let's, let's make sure the world sees the church being the church. It begins with prayer. That's where it starts. The Christian's response to pray like this under these circumstances, in a word, two words, is otherworldly. And, and when the lost world sees us living this way, living godly and dignified lives amid the swirling chaos, it will point them to the one who loves them and desires that they are saved and come to a knowledge of the truth so they too can live that way, a distinct, set-apart life. Mm. This is good, good stuff. This, along with Matthew 9, is the heart, the very heart and desire of our Savior. It's the very heart of, of our Savior. And this is the big vision of God. Right? And as our lives are being conformed and transformed into the image of Jesus, as we abide in him, we will desire to be obedient to that part of that big vision. Jesus said, if you keep my commands, remember from last week in John 15, 10, if you keep my commands, you will abide in my love. There's a lot of commands in scripture. But Jesus distills them down into two when asked. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Vertical relationship. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Later on, Jesus said, love him as I do. And, and he, washed, he washed the feet of the disciples. Love them that way. Love God and love others. It's, it's how we further distill it down so that we cannot possibly forget the greatest commandments. Love God, love others. We do this first in the church, don't we? The beautiful bride of Christ, you and me, Red Tree Church. Sam talked about this last week, how important it is, in particularly, especially now, to stay connected to the bride of Christ. And this is how, through our connection with one another, how God uses the Holy Spirit to convict and encourage us and the means that God uses to draw us both back to Jesus to abide in him. And the word, the phrase he used, I loved it, sanctifying discipleship is, is what he said. I love that. It, it, it immediately what came to my mind was the biblical one another's. That's what that is. Sanctifying discipleship are the biblical one another's. If that's a, a new phrase to you, I would suggest that you Google that. Uh, you will find in the New Testament some 59 or 60 
one another's, love one another, serve one another, pray for one another, exhort one another, encourage one another, and so forth. The overwhelming weight of Jesus's one another's is love. Now, this doesn't terminate on us, the church, right? And here's why. Because the gospel should not terminate on us. The gospel is personal, but the gospel is not private. Jesus said, don't light your lamp and put it under a basket. Put it on a stand for it to give light to all. Now, as we've said, when we abide in Christ, we will desire to be obedient to our part of God's big vision as we are conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. So if abiding in Christ is loving God, how do we love others? Well, there's many, many ways that we can love our neighbors, that we can love others. But there's one very specific way, and it's found in Jesus's final words on earth. What is our part? Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, I'm going back to Matthew 9 again. You connect Matthew 28 with Matthew 9. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations with the fact that Jesus has a heart of compassion for them. He has a heart for the helpless and for the harassed. He sees them as sheep without a shepherd. Beloved, how do you see them? How do you see those that are in the world that are lost, that are your neighbors, that are leaders, that are difficult to love? God says, go and make disciples of all nations. Have compassion for them. This is a God-sized vision. But here's the thing. It's a God-sized vision, but it's delivered one heart at a time. Let me say that again. It's a God-sized vision delivered one heart at a time. That is disciple-making. Now, remember, this is a mid-persecution. First-century context is where this letter is, is being written. From one end of the spectrum of, of being lit on fire to light the streets of Rome, <laughs> that type of persecution, all the way to, to, to the, the, uh, the tension that is created in our own hearts and the internal anxiety that, that we just have ourselves because of our own brokenness. It's a struggle. It's a struggle. And it's because of our lack of abiding in Jesus and the fact that we don't pray. Abiding in prayer are intrinsically linked. Again, John 15, 7. Prayer is the foundation of the life of an abiding disciple. As God provides for us daily, give us our day, our daily bread. We learn to come to him with expectation and honesty for ourselves, confident that he is going to supply that, and for the world around us. And this, this is how we abide in him. And the more that we do this, the more that we are conformed into the image of Jesus. Now, this connects us to the heart of God to seek and to save the lost. The command from Jesus, as we said in Matthew 28, is breathtaking in scope. It's breathtaking in scope. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all 
nations. Again, it's a God-sized vision, but it's delivered one heart at a time through you and through me. We are to make disciples of all nations. We know that, that God is uniting all things to himself. This is, again, evidence of his goodness. And he invites you and me into the process as ambassadors, as ministers of reconciliation, as peacemakers by way of relationships and community. But it begins fundamentally and foundationally with prayer. Now, here's the thing about this God-sized vision. It should render us helpless. It should. So Jesus, before he leaves and says that you are to go and make disciples, he says, I know it's going to render you helpless, so I'm going to give you a helper. helper. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit to achieve this missio Dei, this mission of God. Here's my question. Is your vision too small? Or maybe you feel helpless because it is a big vision. You feel helpless to achieve the mission God has for his church to make disciples. Do you feel ineffective? Do you feel unfruitful in your faith? I would submit to you that's a good thing. That God has you right where he wants you in utter dependence on him. Just like God, just like Jesus inserts himself into John 15 where he gives us this example of he abides in the Father and we are to abide in the Son and together we are hidden with one another in the good Father God. This should cause us all to fall on our knees and and, on our faces as helpless servants of King Jesus where we band together to accomplish what God invites us into by persistent, devoted prayer. Now the final word on this, again, I'm going to go back to, to Matthew 9. Jesus uses this agricultural metaphor of harvesting and needing laborers in to go into the field. As a disciple of Jesus, by the way, the word disciple is used more than the word Christian is used in the New Testament. Only a couple of times will you find the word Christian, but the word disciple That's what people called believers more than they called them Christians. They called them disciples. So as disciples of Jesus, you are that laborer. Now, think about a laborer in our day, right? Um, A laborer can be a carpenter. A laborer can be a plumber. A laborer can be a, a, a concrete finisher, a pipe fitter. There's all kinds of different laborers. Your job title as a laborer is disciple maker. That's who you are. That's at the top of your job description. And we often get intimidated by that term, disciple maker. We don't use it a lot in the church. Consider, however, that your primary tool as a disciple maker with which to plow the fields of lost people's hearts, even those you disagree with, even those who persecute you, even those, even those that you find difficult to love and those that are actively seeking to harass you and to render you helpless, your primary tool is prayer. This is the first and primary step. Now, for some of us, our prayer tool is a rusty. 
For some, we've lost it. We haven't used that, that tool for a long time and we have to rediscover it. For some of us, it's just dull. And we need to get it out. We need to sharpen it up and we need to, to clean it up and get it ready and begin to use it. Your good father will take care of all your needs. He will. He will provide for your daily needs of every kind, bread included. He's given you all you need, all you need to live a peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified life amid the swirling chaos of pandemics, stay-at-home orders and persecution, and whatever obstacle is going to happen in our lives when this whole thing is over because there is always going to be something in the way. So the question we have to ask ourselves is my peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified life just apathy? Or am I availing myself of this amazing truth that my God loves me and has gifted me in my context beyond measure? And I can do something about it. I can be a laborer in a plentiful field of harvest. I can be a disciple maker. And so we are called to pray. We are called to abide and connect to the heart of God, of Jesus, who sees the people in the field as helpless and as harassed and as sheep without a shepherd. And we know the shepherd. We're called to pray. We're called to abide. We're called to connect. We're called to love. And we're called to disciple. I'm going to end today by saying this is hard work. This is difficult work, but it's worth it. We'll say more later and we'll provide more information about, about disciple making and what that means and, and how we can equip. Because truth be told, we, we have to as the church, we have to be about equipping disciple makers to be disciple makers. But for now, let's hang on to this truth that, that God has provided for our needs and we need to be devoted to prayer and so I'm going to end our time by praying and I'm going to say, I'm going to, I'm going to read from Psalm 126, verse 5 and 6. It says this, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Lord Almighty, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to be laborers in the field of harvest. Thank you for the gift of our daily bread that we take for granted. We even rush through a prayer of thanksgiving before we sit down to our meal. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are a good Father who provides daily for us. But thank you for the opportunity to be a part of kingdom work, to make disciples, Lord. Forgive us in our disobedience and give us newfound energy and spirit-filled living that wants to take our prayers and, and sharpen that tool and use it for your glory. 
And there's no better context, Lord, to do that than with other people. And so we thank you that we have a church that prays. Continue to give us hearts to pray, to seek you, to love one another in our church, and to love those in the world who desperately need to know this good God that we preach about and that we love. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.